What a lovely introduction. My name is Johnny, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and before I start to tell my story, I think I need to point out a couple of things. First of all, I'm not from California, and I'm not from Texas. So I understand there's been some discussion about that. Secondly, I'd like to point out that I'm a woman speaker, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, when Mick called me and asked me if I would speak, now, I'm not going to say that AA is sexist at all. I'm not going to. We're not going to do that. I'm simply saying that in those years when I was doing a lot of speaking around the country, uh, I noticed that I, uh, that I never got asked to be the Saturday night speaker, that I got to do Friday night, and I got to do Sunday morning, but never Saturday night. I always save Saturday night for the, for the big guns. So when uh, Mick called and asked me if I would come, and I said yes, and he told me who was coming, and there are great speakers. I think Francis is a great speaker, and Ed C., I've heard a lot, and he is a great speaker. I said, well, when am I speaking, expecting Friday night or Sunday morning or whatever? He said, well, you're our Saturday night speaker. And I said, wow. <laughs> and then I said, and the women can laugh, but the men probably won't. Well, I guess you folks out in Omaha have discovered that alcoholism is an equal opportunity disease. <laughs> so I'm entirely delighted to be here tonight and to be um, to be your Saturday night speaker. And when uh, Nick said that I stopped speaking, I stopped speaking because it had occurred to me in some of the uh, activities that, or the speaking that I was doing that I was expected to be something other than just an AA speaker. I'm not always entertaining. I'm not always funny, and maybe I'm not always memorable. I just do an AA talk, and it, may, it helps me, and I hope it helps you. Um, before I do my talk and before I get into it, I would like to say that one of the reasons I wanted to come to Omaha was that I have two pigeons, as we call them in Omaha, in uh, Washington, I don't know what you call them here, but, but they're, uh, they became pigeons 18 years ago and 14 years ago, but they're now my good friends, and I want, and they, and I invited them to come with me since they are native Nebraskans. Um, and I'd like them to stand up and have you greet them. I have Kathy Truex, who's from Norfolk, Nebraska. And my good friend Carol Collins, who's from Omaha. They've been having a good time here, too. I grew up in a little town in North Carolina, a very dull little town, one of the dullest little towns you could imagine. One of the best reasons for, I think, becoming an alcoholic is to grow up in a small, dull little town. Um, and when I talk about my drinking and how it began and and um, and how my, my alcoholism uh, started and progressed, I talk, I think, not so much about how much I drank, although I drank a great deal, or how much trouble I got into from drinking, although I got into a great deal of trouble. Uh, there's nothing, and I think I'm a typical woman alcoholic, there's nothing particularly dramatic or exciting about my alcoholism. And I don't tend to talk about, uh, in great lengths, uh, amounts drunk and blackouts had and that sort of thing. What I talk about because it's what it's what alcohol did for me, and it's one of the things that got me here to this program, is that emotional landscape of my alcoholism. 
that thing, although I, for many years, didn't look or act or behave in any overt way like an alcoholic, what was happening to me was as deadly, as brutalizing, as demeaning, as uh, being thrown into jail or being put away or any of the rest of the things that happen to people who have more fun drinking. Um, I'm a typical woman alcoholic in that way. And in the very beginning of my drinking, what happened to me made me an alcoholic. And I'm one of those people who's convinced that I was an alcoholic from the time I took my first drink. I didn't show it. I didn't get out of control. But because of that, what I'm talking about in a sense, that emotional landscape of my alcoholism, I know that I was hooked from the moment I began because alcohol did a couple of things for me right away. The first thing it did was it substantially changed reality for me. It made my world immediately and palpably better. And it needed to be made better because I grew up in in this little town and I was what the government calls now disadvantaged, which what it really means is I was poor. And being poor and being sort of uh, not having the material things, not having the sorts of things that you need and want when you're young, it was a great deprivation to me. Alcohol helped. Booze helped. Um, the second thing I think that uh, alcohol did for me is that I grew up with a sense of purpose and striving <clears throat> and vision <clears throat> and almost greed for life. I've had it all of my life. And alcohol fuels that. There are lots of people that I hear who talk about drinking who say, <clears throat> uh, when they're, who are non-alcoholics, they say, oh, I, you know, if you say you're an alcoholic, they say, oh, I can't drink, I get sleepy. Well, I never got sleepy. I got energy out of alcohol. I got energy out of drinking. I mean, I was ready to go. A few drinks, and the world was infinite in its possibilities for me. So those two things alone, I think, hooked me on drinking when I first began. <clears throat> I liked everything else about it, too. I liked the fun. I liked the taste. I liked the whole scene that drinking presented. And I was beginning my drinking in World, in world War II. I don't know if I'll tell you my age, but maybe I'll tell you later. But I wonder how many people in here remember World War II. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to see I have a few. I'm getting less and less. I mean, it's getting less and less populated with people who remember World War II. But I was in my teens. But anyway, I grew up in this little town, and I was working for a um, for a local newspaper. I'm a newspaper nut. I got hooked on newspapers early on in my life. And um, I didn't have a college education, so I couldn't be a writer, although I have since written, and fairly successfully. Um, but I could be an advertising salesman, because almost anybody can sell, you know, if you can speak English. I did go to high school. Um, so... I also had the knack for it. I'm, I'm very um, outgoing. I'm an extrovert. I like people. I like talking to people. I like being with people. Uh, and it was obviously a very happy profession for drinking. That didn't escape me. I mean, you were expected to drink. In those years you were if you worked for newspapers. So I learned to drink and learned to drink well very early on. And I can't remember my first drink, and I don't think it matters. But I know I was in my mid to late teens when I started. 
And I went on to, <clears throat> to uh, I got married, World War II, everybody was getting married, so it's like a train leaving the station, doesn't matter where you're going, just get on it, you know. So I got married, a wartime marriage, lasted till the end of the war, and four years, four and a half years later, he came back, and I went, who, you know. <laughs> but anyway, he, um, it was, I, I had to get out of that little town. My ambitions, my needs, my vision. I was a dreamer. I wonder if there are dreamers here. I hope there are. I mean, people who say, there's more than this. There's more, there's a, there's a larger world out there. And I gotta go see it. I was one of those. And being a woman and having those kinds of ambitions were really very conflicting. Because I am, a, am of a generation, unlike many of you, where you were not expected to have a mind if you were a woman. You were certainly not expected to have a professional career. If you worked, it was to, to assist your husband or because you were, you know, had nothing better to do. What you were expected to do if you were a woman growing up in my generation was to, to uh, get married, to hopefully a guy was going to, you know, take good care of you, have some children, and be a good wife and mother. That's what you were expected to do. And I didn't want that. I wanted that in a sense, but I didn't want it. I wanted to be like everybody else. I was the early indication of all my alcoholism was my early people pleasing. I wanted it all. I wanted to be what I wanted to be, but I wanted to be what they wanted me to be also. And that set up a thing which, <clears throat> interestingly enough, helped me so much to get here and get sober. Got me to be an alcoholic very quickly and very fast. But it also got me here and got me sober. And that was, I became a consummate role player. I could be anything you wanted me to be. And I was. And so, as time went on, I extricated myself from this marriage, young, wartime, not to be treated with any credibility marriage. I think he was just as relieved as I was. Came to Washington in the 50s, and I was had worked for a couple of small newspapers in North Carolina, and I wanted to work for uh, a major newspaper. That was going to be my ticket, my ticket, as they say, to ride, my ticket to get it all. And so I went to work for the Washington Post. And I can sort of summarize my career uh, in about three sentences for the next 25, 26 years. I, very, I became the first woman advertising representative outside representative. They had women on newspapers in those years who worked in classified sales because you just talked on the phone. You could be heard but not seen. And um, I was the first woman hired on the Washington Post as an outside salesperson and went on to become the first woman on the New York Times and the first woman on the New York Herald Tribune. And that took about 26 years and gallons of Jack Daniels. Gallons of Jack Daniels. Um, <laughs> that was my favorite drink. And... Um, <laughs> Um, he was a good buddy, old Jack. He got me through a lot of rough places. And I was, I guess, what you would call, in those years, a functioning alcoholic. Doing all the things that I could do to live my life and live it well, to be professionally uh, accept, uh, successful, and to be acceptable on the other side, too. And then I met, in Washington, the a wonderful man whom I married, whom I fell in, madly in love with and loved deeply, and the worst possible person for me, for, for a woman 
who was as 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 uh, deep into the denial and deep into alcoholism as I was. He was a young, up-and-coming historian, brilliant, interesting man, the stupidest human being I think I've ever met <laughs> in terms of other people. Absolutely no sense of other people. A man who lived entirely in his head, true academic. I hope there aren't any academics here. If there are, they're going to run me out of the room. Um, and I'm the least likely person to be a faculty wife, let me assure you. But anyway, I fell madly in love with him. We got married. We had, our, my son was born in Washington. And then he went to teach at Brooklyn College in New York. And in those years, they didn't pay professors very much money. And I wanted to keep working, and he was willing to have me do that. I had stayed home from work the first year my son was born. And <clears throat> he, Mark was a delightful baby. He's now a marvelous, marvelous grown-up and one of my best friends. But a year-old child is hardly a great conversationalist. And my feeling was, when you clean one John, you clean them all. I mean, you know, there's nothing challenging about that. So I talked him into letting me go back to work. <clears throat> and I stayed with the Washington Post until he went off to teach at Brooklyn College in New York. And I went off to make my fortune my way in the Big Apple. And I went to work first for the New York Times. Stayed there for a year. <clears throat> didn't like it because they didn't pay enough money, in my view and was bought almost by the New York Herald Tribune, which was then in that period in the newspaper industry in New York, where there <clears throat> there was a lot of labor unrest and a lot of trouble. And John Hay Whitney had bought the Herald Tribune, and they were trying to rebuild it. So they were interested in people with my talents, and they, they hired me, and I went to work. And I handled the department store classification and the specialty store classification for the Tribune for about six years. And I was a daily drunk. And sometimes when I think about those years, I, I find it almost incredible to believe that I was doing what I was doing and getting away with it and drinking a fifth of booze a day, easily a fifth of booze a day. Everybody in New York who worked in the advertising business drank, and I guess I must look like everybody else. And I was drinking very heavily, but functioning. I was running into those things that you run into when you're functioning, practicing alcoholic, which are all these, uh, and women get these, I think, more than men, I was, I kept getting sick, and I get thrown into a hospital from pneumonia, colitis, all these things that are alcohol-induced problems, and what, would, what was happening was I'd dry out, I think that's what kept me going, I, you know, I'd be stuck in there for a couple of weeks, no booze, I'd dry out and come out, start all over again. And then there came a time when my husband went, was going to teach at the University of Massachusetts, in Amherst, Massachusetts, and the family, and I had, by the way, I had also, when we got to New York, in addition to Mark, I had been able to adopt my daughter there, <coughs> Connie, and one of the nicest things that has ever happened to me anywhere, including New York. <coughs> and Connie and Mark and their father and I went off to Amherst, Massachusetts to live, where he was to teach at, uh, the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I was to retire. And it was interesting in a sense. Now, you have to, I have to tell you a little story about my attitude in those years. First of all, here I am, not <coughs> educated in the sense that he was. He had impeccable credentials academically. He had a BA and an MA from the University of California, Berkeley. He had a PhD from Columbia, and he was sort of targeted as being an up-and-coming 
young historian. And I graduated from a local high school. And we were, particularly in Washington before we left, we were being invited out to a lot of dinners and stuff in which you had some fairly heavy-duty academic people, historians in particular, people who were... And, and, and academics tend to label you. And when I talk about an attitude, now see if it doesn't ring a bell with you. It's what I call my alcoholic attitude. I still have some of it, but I had a real chip on my shoulder then in addition to this attitude about not having a college education. And so we'd go to these dinners, and I would try not to drink before I went because I knew there were very staid sort of dinners, and I knew it was not good to inject alcohol into this attitude, because if you did, something embarrassing had to happen. So instead of drinking, I decided that I would fake my college education, and I wasn't going to lie about it. And it was it was the attitude, the finger-to-the-world attitude that sometimes we alcoholics have, um, which I think is wonderful, and I, I think we ought to always keep it, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but anyway, I I made up this mythical college, which I located up in Vermont, which I called Turner. Because uh, who the hell knows what's in Vermont, you know? <laughs> so I'd go to these dinner parties, and some academic asshole would turn to me and say, figuring, you know, she's married to him, so he'd turn to me and say, and where did you take your degree, Mrs. Elvin? And I'd say, Turner. My husband would get pale. <laughs> and I'd say, Turner College. And they go, Turner College. I'd say, up in Vermont. And they go, oh, yes. <laughs> and I go, <laughs> They really didn't care where I went to school. They just wanted to label me as going somewhere. I direct a program which utilizes universities now for the federal government. We give them money. You can't believe I enjoy that. And, um, I had to open one of these small business development centers in Vermont. <laughs> it was about seven years ago. You won't believe what I did. I went there and I'm sitting at this table and I had taken the check, you know, it's a fair amount of money and presented it. It'd been a big ceremony. They took me out to lunch afterward and I'm sitting there between the dean of the school of business and the provost of the university and this dean typically turned to me and said, you have a fascinating job, Johnny. What's your educational background? And that tape clicked on in my head. Oh, I went to my, I said to myself, don't do it, Albertson, you're in Vermont. I couldn't help it. I finally said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> it's interesting that you should ask. I went, I went to school in Vermont. And he said, oh, did you really where? And I said, Turner College. And he said, oh yeah, down near Bellows Falls. <laughs> I felt so good about that. <laughs> oh, wow. But it, that's my alcoholic attitude, you know. I'll show you. Anyway, we went off to Amherst, and my husband, who drank, but had never had the sort of drinking, didn't do the kind of drinking I did, and didn't know I was an alcoholic. Uh, Dean died five years ago after we were divorced. But he died and still didn't know what an alcoholic was. He was a modern American historian. He... His period went up through the pilgrims, and I used to say he could recognize a pilgrim instantly, but he wouldn't know an alcoholic if he fell over one. <laughs> he didn't. 
But we went off to live in Emerson. Oddly enough, I didn't drink very much for the first year we were there. I am. Um, before I before I get into that, let me just tell you what happened when I the day I left New York, the, my last uh, official day there. I was given a, a luncheon by a group of my colleagues on the Tribune, and they invited all the major retailers to it, very big important people. And I'm talking about this young skinny kid from North Carolina who had this dream and had this vision. And they had it at the St. Regis, and they gave me this plaque. It looks kind of like a tombstone. I still have it. Um, and they, you know, made all the right speeches and all that kind of stuff, and I got up to respond, and of course I'd had about three vodka Gibsons. That's, during my work days, I drank vodka Gibsons in the day because you couldn't smell it, you know, supposedly, couldn't smell it. Um, and I had about three, and I remember standing there and looking out over this group of people because I had not, I had no knowledge in a sense that I was an alcoholic. I had, I knew I drank a lot, but I didn't, I never had put alcohol, alcoholic and drinking together in any way. I don't know where my head had been all those years because I had no particular knowledge that alcoholism existed and could happen to people like me. But I'm, I'm, um, I looked out over this group of distinguished people who had come to do me honor and I remembered my background, that awful kind of yearning to become somebody that I had had growing up. And I had this real, real sense of triumph. I've never forgotten that feeling because right on the heels of that feeling, I had a thought. And it was the first time that I tied alcohol to something that was happening to me. What I, what I thought was, I'll be glad to get out of this town so I don't drink so much. Because something was happening to me. When I talk about the emotional landscape, of my alcoholism. That's what I'm talking about. I wasn't any longer easy in my own mind. There was something eating me alive inside. And it was, it was not definable by any terms that I knew. I was no longer comfortable in my own skin in a sense. I had this sense of this unease. Something was happening to me and I couldn't identify it. I didn't know what it was. And I identified it for the first time there in that particular instance when I remember that feeling. So I went off to Amherst, and I didn't drink very much the first year. I don't know why. And then this marriage, which had meant a great deal to me, began to come apart. And it came apart the way marriages do sometimes if one of the partners is an alcoholic. There were so many times when I should have confronted that I did not. It was easier to drink. There, I had so many needs that should have been met. And I didn't ask to be met because it was easy to drink. And when this thing began to fray and to come apart, I dived into the bottle. And I began to drink now as much as I could drink every day. I had no barriers between me and that kind of drinking because I no longer worked. Um, in the beginning, I had tried to keep up some semblance of, of uh, participation in the community. But I discovered very quickly, I guess that first year, the reason I didn't drink so much, I discovered very quickly that people in little towns like Amherst or academics don't drink the way I drank. You know, they drink wine coolers and sherry, and they drink beer. And I always drank beer when I wasn't drinking. And I never could understand <laughs> anybody using beer for, a, for an alcoholic drink. 
And we would go to the, and I began there, I can remember that in retrospect, began there looking at my pattern and looking at what was going on with me, I began to see, in retrospect, the pattern of, of the alcoholic emerging, because we would be invited to these dinner parties, and I, and they never served any booze at these dinner parties to speak of, and I would, I would have a few drinks before we went, and Dean would come out and say to me, what are you drinking for? We're going to the, you know, and I'd say, well, I never serve any booze. Because what would happen, you get to these dinner parties, and academics are poor people. At least they were in those years. I don't think they are so much now. And I also think they're a little stingy. But anyway, they, the hostess would come out with this tray, with this little bitty bottle on it, and these tiny little glasses, and I would, I would die, you know, just die. So I would drink before I went. And then I would drink after I came home. Perfect alcoholic behavior. But anyway, I started to drink as much as I could drink. My alcoholism had apparently progressed quite a, quite a bit. That year I had not been drinking. And very quickly I was in serious trouble. And very quickly I tried to kill myself because I couldn't figure out what to do about this marriage and I couldn't figure out what to do about me. And whatever world I had constructed came apart. And after a horrible year, of being hospitalized and all all sorts of things happening in my life, not being in, absolutely out of control. Um, I finally came back to Washington with my children in in 1968, late summer of 1968, and I was a total hopeless alcoholic. It astounds me today when I think about it that I could be in that kind of uh, uh, condition. And and not, I don't know, maybe they thought wives of professors of history didn't have alcoholism. Because I kept getting thrown in hospitals, particularly after the suicide attempt. The suicide attempt was interesting in that they uh, dragged me off to Boston University Hospital in Boston and hospitalized me in a nut ward, my first trip to a nut ward. And I'd been in and out of hospitals in New York. And this was not one of those, you know, bad places. Everybody was very civilized, I guess, for not war. Um, and I was diagnosed as having a nervous breakdown. And I was delivered to that unit in DTs, I now know, withdrawing from alcohol. And they said I was having a nervous breakdown. And the interesting thing was that I was there for six weeks, and, and um, I, we had a psychiatrist on the ward. It was a very posh kind of place for this kind of treatment. And um, they would occasionally let the nurses take us out to dinner. And I would say, I'm not going out to dinner unless we can go where you can have a drink. And I'm going, I don't want to go. Well, so we go where we can have a drink. And I would throw down a couple of vodka Gibsons on top of the Thorazine they were pumping into me and go nuts, you know. And nobody ever looked at it in that way. It was astounding to me. I had been sober about a year <clears throat> when I had to go back to Boston on a business trip, and I called up this psychiatrist who'd been my psychiatrist there, Dr. Goody Tuchus, I called him, and I said, you remember me? And he said, oh, yes, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. I said, I thought you might be interested to know that I discovered what my problem was. He said, oh, you were a very disturbed young woman. I said, well, I discovered what my problem was, doctor. I'm an alcoholic. And when I was delivered to your facility, I was withdrawing from alcohol, and I was having DTs. There was a long silence. And he said, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and then he said, I must make a note on my record. 
alcoholism, a treatable disease, dying of it. The same thing was happening to me in Washington when I came back. I came back with my two children. I, t- I had an, I got an apartment in Southwest Washington. I had a little money, and I I drank. I I um, I sent the kids off to school. I let Harry's liquor into the liver, and I drank. And by about January of 1969, I knew that whatever it was that I had set out to be in from that little town in North Carolina was not going to happen for me. That I was finished. That I was done. That whatever it was was wrong with me was going to do me in, and I might as well forget it. So I called my brilliant ex-husband, by now ex-husband, and asked him if he would come down and help me decide what to do, because I really was concerned about my two children. They were ages, at that time, 8 and 12. And I wasn't sure I was able, I was going to be able to care for them because I couldn't do anything but drink. Drink, pass out, drink, pass out. I saw a doctor in the building because I was sick a lot. I never saw him when I was sober. I taught him more about alcoholism than any medical school ever taught him. Because after it was all over, he said to me, boy, I'm going to watch my other patients because I'm astounded. You know, I was in, in, I was dying of this disease. Well, Dean came down, patronizing son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> delighted I'm in trouble again, <laughs> and decided that he'd put me in a hospital. And I was, at, I was conditioned to going to hospitals. <clears throat> and so I went off with him to the hospital and um, didn't ask any questions, just, you know, paddled off. And in the admitting office, keep in mind it's January, and I'm standing in this admitting office, and I'm wearing a pair of Bermuda shorts and an old shirt and sneakers. And the doctor looked at me and said, do you know what your problem is, Mrs. Albertson? And I said, I'm sick. You know, I could see 40 of them. <laughs> I mean, I had been drinking so much for so long that you could have, I was 86 proof and sloshy. You could have labeled me. And I said, I'm sick. And he said, you're an alcoholic. That's your problem. That's all your problem is. And I argued with him. You know, couldn't see him stumbling around in my shorts and my sneakers. And he said, I'm going to, when you get upstairs, I want to write this on your admitting slip. And when you get upstairs and sober up, I want you to look at it because that's your problem. That's all your problem is. And I'm, yeah, you know, what do you know? It's that bastard's fault. You know, everything was Dean's fault. So I went off with this guy who was carrying my bag, following heels. Have you ever followed heels? You know, you, you, you just, Watch the heels. When the heels stop, you stop. You don't look up because you're not going to like what's out there. Just follow the heel. So I'm following the heel. I noticed the heels was locking doors behind it. And I said to him, what are you doing that? And he said, don't you know where you are? And I said, no. He said, where am I? And he said, you're in San Elizabeth's. And I said, what's that? San Elizabeth's is a mental facility for the insane in Washington. Has some very notable patients. You probably know Mr. Hinckley for one. And St. Elizabeth's in those years, this is January of 1969, had a great program for men alcoholics, had absolutely none for women. And if you were unlucky enough or unfortunate enough to get thrown into Sandy's as a woman alcoholic, they threw you in with the crazy people. And by the time he had sort of explained to me the circumstances, we had arrived at something called Dick's Ward 8. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking 
at Total Madness. I mean, the late, late, late show kind of madness. And a corner of my mind, I guess, was still so red, because I've never forgotten that feeling. Looking at this in front of me, and I thought to myself, I'm not crazy, because that's crazy, and I'm not that. And then I remembered what the doctor had said. You're an alcoholic. That's your problem. And that, I guess, for me, was not the first step, but the beginning of the first step. Because what I recognized at that moment was that this life I had sought to lead, this sense of my own individual right to be, right to achieve, right to be free, to be whoever it was I was or could be, I was handing to a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I probably could die. I probably wanted to die. I probably think that was sort of pushing me. But I couldn't die that way. Not me. Not after all the journey I had made. All the things I had done. All the places I had seen. I wasn't going to die like that. Never. Not me. And so, I said to the first person who walked by, and I was so frightened. I said, I need a lawyer. <laughs> I think it's about the first and only time in my life I've ever said that. This happened to be one of those big attendants. She said, honey, you ain't going to get the lawyer in here. Not unless he's crazy. <laughs> well, I sobered up in there, and I shook, and I hallucinated. And I did all the things you do when you sober up cold turkey. Every other time I'd ever sobered up, I'd sobered up in a hospital drug assistant. This time I sobered up cold turkey. I finally uh, made a phone. I didn't have any money. And, and my husband, my ex-husband, um, his motives were quite clear. He, he had thrown me away. It would have been very easy for me to have disappeared. He didn't understand what was wrong with me. I was an embarrassment to him. He would love to have had his children. And so he threw me away. And I'm standing one day at about day three, and I'm still shaking, and I'm still sick, and I'm still hallucinating. But I knew I had to get out of there. And I knew, I thought, what was the matter with me. And I'm looking at a payphone that was in one of the halls. And one of the, the one of the patients, one of these crazy people, walked by. She said, why are you looking at the payphone? And I said, I'd like to make a phone call. And she said, well, why don't you? And I said, I don't have a dime. I think it cost a dime then. And she said, you don't need a dime with this one. And I said, what do you mean? It's a payphone. And she said, well, I fixed it. <laughs> she said, I fixed it so if you just jiggle the hook a little bit, you can get a dial tone. And I said, would you show me how you did? She said, sure. So she showed me and I got a dial tone. And I called the operator and I gave her the name of a person I needed to reach and told her what a terrible emergency it was. And I guess the desperation in my voice must have communicated it to me because there were two or three of them and she found the right one and let me stay on the line until she got him on. And the right one was a guy who I had known in North Carolina who I had also known on the Hill when I worked on the Hill. And he had worked for the congressman that I would worked for for a time when I first came to Washington. And um, he had he had become, as you do in Washington, you know, things 
progressed, he had become a U.S. judge. I figured I didn't need a lawyer. I needed the whole ruddy court to get out of there. So I called my friend Leo, and about 45 minutes later, he showed up over there waving all kinds of papers, and he got a hearing for me, and a couple of days later, I'm out of there. And I get home. I throw my ex-husband out of my apartment and tell him I know what my problem is, go back to Amherst and teach all those freshmen and enjoy himself. And... Um, but nobody had told me anything other than this. The review board didn't tell me. The only person who said you're an alcoholic had been the guy downstairs. And uh, I looked in the yellow pages under alcoholism, and I saw Alcoholics Anonymous. I literally didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called the number and got him a guy. I didn't tell him I'd just escaped from Sandy's. I said, <laughs> I said in my best, you know, culture tone, I have been told I have a drinking problem. <laughs> so he said he'd have somebody call me, and pretty soon this woman called me, and I talked with her for a minute, and she said, I'll come by and take you to a meeting. I hung up the phone, congratulated myself on having handled the problem with such great dispatch, and fixed myself a bloody mirror. And by the time she got there that evening, I was drunk. And so I made one of the more auspicious entries into Washington AA. I went to meetings, I got drunk for five days, and I went to meetings every night for the five days. They took me to the meetings. I fell downstairs, if there were stairs. I would get dressed up, but my hose were falling down around my ankles. I'd play a fairly decent piano, and if there was a piano in the room, I would sit down and play the piano in the meeting. Um, I would talk back to the speakers. <laughs> what I loved about this program when I think about it, is you people would smile and look at me and say, keep coming back. <laughs> keep coming. I remember that. Keep coming back. I'd say to myself, friendly bunch, you know. <laughs> well, that went on for five days, and then I found myself unable to do it anymore. And uh, my two sponsors, by the way, I've been sober in AA for two years before I found out you could pick a sponsor. These two people who answered the call, who came and took me to my first meeting, I thought it was like a big scavenger hunt. Whoever found you got to keep you, you know. And so they were automatically my sponsor. But they took me to Marcel, which was a, what a friend of mine, Ted, calls a spin-dry place, drying-out place. And then I went to, to a place called Melwood, which was the only treatment facility in the Washington area then. That was in February of 1969. And thanks to you people in this program, I haven't had a drink since. And what's my life like now? It's just an incredible life to describe. I have such a good and rich life. All the things I look for. How to describe that kind of sense of being... It's very difficult for women, particularly, to understand that alcoholism is really your, alcoholism and your ticket and your recovery from it is really your ticket to run. In, in AA, I have found all of those things that made for me such an extraordinary, has made for me such an extraordinary life. I've been sober for 26 years. Every bit of those 26 years has been a new adventure, a new experience. I got my professional life back. 
I'm, I, I run this national program and I'm a senior executive of the Small Business Administration. That is, if it hangs around until I get back, <laughs> there's some, some doubt about that. I may be retired or job hunting next week, who knows. But I've had a very, very good and, and satisfying and productive and exciting and challenging professional life. Now, maybe the, all the women who come into AA don't want that. But if you do, being in AA, being in this recovery program, learning who you are, learning to get that sense of yourself centered that is important, that does not depend on peripherals for a sense of who you are. I depended all of my life on who I was married to or if I was married to somebody or where I worked or what my business card sense said for a sense of who I am. I no longer do that thanks to the people in this program and thanks to this fellowship. I've, I, have, I have a right to be. I have a right to be exactly what I can be. If I want to be somebody, I can. If I don't, I don't need to. An extraordinary life full of all the Carols and Kathys, and I have a group in Washington, women I sponsor. And let me just say this. If you're in, in AA and you're bored, find somebody to sponsor. It's the most wonderful, enriching, delightful, and it, it, it not, not that it just keeps you sober. It gives you an added dimension to your life that you have you can't get anywhere else or in any other way. To share somebody's sober, new life, extraordinary sense. And I value that so much. I have, my children grew up and got over my alcoholism. Both of them really are my best friend. I guess, I guess the best way to close is to talk a little bit about something I read a long time ago in a, in an article I was fairly newly sober in A, but the article so impressed me, I never forgot it. <coughs> and it was an article in Psychology Today. But what it was was a sort of scholarly examination of AA and uh, so-called 12-step program. And it was written by a woman psychologist um, who obviously didn't know a great deal about alcoholism, but she did a fairly credible job. And something that she said in there makes me want to close that struck me and I want to close with that because I have a sense of this group as a sort of celebration of this event a sort of celebration of being together for this very wonderful and and uh, rewarding and nurturing weekend she said um, she asked the question she posed the question in this article um, why after we've been sober for a while we still go to meetings and uh, she answered her own question by saying, I guess they still go to meetings to remember what they were and to celebrate what they have become. Thank you. <laughs>